Welcome to the Osprey Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by someone that has truly set the standard in her sport, the warrior on wheels, mountain bike legend, Tracy Mosley. We're going to dive straight into it. So I'm your host, Marcus Brown, and this is the Osprey Podcast. Tracy Mosley, thank you very much for being here. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, how have you been dealing with lockdown? Everyone seems to have been sort of leaning into their own thing. What have you been up to? Yeah, I think I think I'm probably one of the fortunate people in terms of where I live in location. I've, I live in a rural place. I've had, you know, I've had that space, which I think has been the key, hasn't it, for lockdown for some people? You know, if you're in a mm. in a city flat with no outdoor garden, I can ima- I can't imagine how one I would have coped, and two how a two year old that I've got in my life would have dealt with that. Yeah. So I do feel f- for anyone that's been in that situation that you know, in many ways, for me, life's continued. Um, I guess in normal to a certain extent, um, living on my parents' farm, we've we've had that space. Work-wise, it's been different. This is probably the first spring and summer or early summer that I've ever had or had so much consistent time at home since I started mountain bike racing in about year 2000. So it's probably in the last 20 years. I've never seen a whole of an April, a May, and, a, and now almost a June. So that's been quite quite rare, but in some ways actually quite refreshing you know just to do things differently I think it's so easy just to get into that kind of conveyor belt of life um as we're all on and actually it's it has forced us all to stop obviously there's a you know a great a, a greater picture and horrendous lot of sad that's sad loss that's gone on with it um but in many ways for me it's been a chance to kind of slow down take stock and you know enjoy actually being at home with with family and um yeah not being quite on the road as much as I would have been at events over the last few months so not being uh yeah not being bad in in that sense so nice yeah um let's just sort of review your career highlights briefly so people realize the caliber of individual we're talking to you're three times world enduro champion 2013 14 and 15 15 time world enduro sorry you've got 15 world enduro wins one time world downhill champion two time world cup downhill overall champion 16 downhill uh world cup wins Seven times British national down her champion. The list does continue. I'm going to stop wowzers. before I run out of breath. <laughs> uh, Good work. You, I mean, you say wowzers, that's all your work. <laughs> I, don't know, but I guess when you hear a list like that, it sounds a bit crazy, actually, because it's all, you know, it's all come across a long, a long time span. You know, it's over, sure. over a good 20 years of racing. So, yeah, I guess for me, um, I grew up on a, a dairy farm I've got an older brother so as kids growing up a farm we always had bikes as kids to kind of mess around on um mm-hmm. I think having that older brother, brother influence certainly progressed my level of riding and my skills because I always wanted to do whatever he was doing um I'm certainly the competitiveness that I've had throughout my career is, was definitely there in those early days as well just wanting to be able to beat him and do you know just do everything that follow him I guess in his footsteps so that's where I think a lot of my kind of general skill base came from was just playing around we used to make little ramps and do crazy steep shoots up in the woods on the farm and just play outside you know as kids did um and then it was actually my brother that started racing mountain bikes in the mid 90s um there was a big uh mountain bike festival um called the Morven hills classic which was at east nordia park which is close to where i am uh, in the Morven hills and we went along to watch that they were hosting a national championships and it kind of just all evolved from then. He started going to more races, doing national series. I kind of went along, 
he was saying, you know, you should, you should race, you know, you're better than a lot of these girls that I see at these races. Cause obviously I'd ridden with him and he, he knew what I could do. Um, but it took me a while to convince me cause I was, I loved loads. I was always sporty. I loved my school sports, my hockey, my netball, my tennis, anything at school was always very active. Also played a lot of music. So I had lots of stuff going on at school and it wasn't just mountain biking. Um, so it took me a while to kind of really, I guess, fall in love with it. And I think initially for me, it was the success that kind of drew me to it. I started off as a junior winning a national title and then quickly moved into the senior ranks, um, winning national titles, you know, as a senior. And then came this chance to start traveling overseas. And then that whole kind of travel thing and a chance to go places and mm. ride my bike was also massively appealing. Um, but I still, I still never quite thought that 20 years later, I'd be sat here now, you know, having had this career and still be involved in the mountain bike industry. Like I would never have dreamt that. So at the time when I was kind of finishing my A-levels at school, I decided that I still, I would go to university because this biking thing was just fun. You know, for me at that point, it wasn't a career. There was no longevity of it. It was just something that I was doing and hadn't ever thought anything more of it. So I went to Sheffield and did a degree in um, human biology, which I got a 2-1 in, which was great, but I've not used it ever since that day. Because oh. <laughs> pretty much from the day I left uni, I, uh, I started racing mountain bikes and I've been, you know, lucky enough to be on a professional team for the next you know 15 years of racing world cup downhill initially and then more recently racing world enduro so it's kind of just yeah it evolved it was never a planned pathway there was certainly no like high performance you know kids you see now in kids sport like you know getting kind of channeled into this is a sport you're going to be and your mum and dad mm. are pushing you and pressuring there was none of that at all it was just super organic fun riding bikes is cool. is the is the mountain bike world a little more like that now um, I'm sure it's changed a lot over the years. Is it? Is there more of a system in place and like people get trained up on programs and things? Yeah, I think like every sport, you know, certainly mountain biking, the Olympics, I think, has been the kind of, I guess that's the, is the iconic kind of pinnacle of sport, isn't it? If everyone mm. wants to go to Olympics to represent their country. But for mountain biking, we're kind of divided in the cross-country mountain biking. So that's the in more endurance-based multi-lap um, circuit where you go race uphill and downhill. So it's normally an hour and a half race and you're racing mass start as a group. That discipline is an Olympic sport. So they have that as their kind of pinnacle. So I think there's probably more pathways and more pressure to try and get onto the, that system. Mm. Where downhill and enduro, they're not, Olymp not Olympic sports. So they don't have that kind of government funding. They don't have the, the pressure. So it's still, it's very different in that sense that, it's all about sponsorship and it's all about getting a bike company to basically sponsor you to, to promote their brand um, and go and race. So there's not quite that same kind of national body structure or pathway. In fact, there's very little support from British cycling for non-Olympic sports, if I'm honest. Right. Um, most of the success that we've had as a nation in downhill has been very much down to the individuals and also the, the fact that we've got a strong racing scene we've had success at the top that's bred juniors wanting to aspire and if you race a national in the uk you're going to be racing the best riders in the world so it's it's grown an incredible kind of talent pool over the years and we've been fortunate enough to have you know bike companies that have been investing into the into the sport so we're kind of very separate to really the national body stuff and that kind of high pressure getting kids onto you know gymnastics programs at three and they're going to train mm. five times a week um but there is definitely that kind of still you you see young kids now wanting to be the next world champion out there and they're definitely kind of wanting the best bike they're trying to get sponsored when they're still in single digit years you know wow. and you get requests from from it's more i think from the parents it's that pushy parent syndrome uh, that they yeah. you know maybe the parents 
love cycling, mountain biking, but never were that good at it. And suddenly they got this kid that's actually showing talent. So it's like, right, let's let's kind of live their live their dream through their child. And um, yeah. I say that with a two year old that obviously I'm going to want to ride a bike. So it's going to be interesting to to be able to be in that situation in a few years time. And I sincerely hope that I I won't be um, that pushy parent. But I can imagine it is it is tough if you you know you enjoy a you know a sport. You're going to want your kids to enjoy it too. Mm. So. Yeah, it's it's definitely different across mountain biking, and thankfully, I think without the Olympics, in some ways, it actually keeps it keeps it, some of the fun elements still there, and some of that kind mm. of you know less structured, less pressured, and it's it's a, certainly a super social, fun sport for anyone to get involved in. I, I think it's a really interesting thing that you know a lot of kind of street sports and and these kind of more ragtag sports that that start very organically, they arrive at a point where they're considered for the Olympics and a lot of people do get nervous that it's going to change the, uh, the, the fabric of what the sport is. Yeah. Um, and it makes sense because, you know, you, you look at, I don't know, take, take parkour for an example. Um, I'm yeah. embedded in the parkour community, so I know a fair bit about this and they're the, the gymnastics association want to put parkour forward, um, under the realm of gymnastics, but there's, there's been this huge, argument in the community as to whether or not that would actually be good for yeah. you know what traditionally people call parkour um yeah. and I, I think it's so interesting just seeing how the sports grow and how that does affect those coming into it um oh, for sure it has a huge influence i think and mm. you know from an athlete's perspective i would love to have gone to olympic games you know don't get me wrong mm. there's that you know that kid dream of being you watch it on tv every four years and i still now just sit down and, uh, yeah it's it's amazing you watch yeah. it and you just i love every sport that i see on tv and i would love to have been part of that and i'd love to have a go at trying to become olympic champion but i've not you know i've not been in a sport that's done that so this part of me that is is kind of it's a shame but i also know it's the there's i see the other kind of the stresses the politics the money the mm. all the horrible stuff that comes with that as well and i think oh wow i'm so glad that that, that wasn't part of my career and i haven't been had to go down that path and be involved in all those politics so it's a it's a fine balance i think and i think sometimes you have to be you have to be grateful actually for from thinking okay i've still for me certainly i'm i feel like i've achieved what i've wanted to do i've got to the top of where i can do in my sport and that's all you can do you know you can you can do what's there and what's achievable so uh, I'm actually, personally, I think I'm quite grateful that the two disciplines of mountain biking that I've kind of chosen to, to get to the top of have been ones that, that have still been quite true to their roots in many ways. Um, and I think you get great people, and that's one of the most amazing things, the friendships that you know, I've created from traveling around the world. You know, I feel like I could go on holiday to every continent now and have someone I know that I could go and stay with, and they'd show me their local town, and it, it would be awesome. And that's one of the most exciting things about sport, I think. Let's talk about the two disciplines that you did uh, excel at. So downhill and enduro, what's the difference? What are they each? Okay, so downhill is where I, I first started. And again, a lazy uh, lazy teenager, liked going downhill and liked that speed, but didn't have to pedal back up. So um, <laughs> downhill is actually very much like downhill skiing for anyone that's kind of watched that, that concept. So it's one rider at a time against the clock. Literally, you, if you're in the Alps, you will take a chairlift like you would in the winter to the top of the mountain, and then you will descend um, a taped off trail that will be some of the big wide open pieces. It'll be in the trees. It'll be a mixture of high speed, low speed, pretty technical, predominantly all downhill. Um, and it's basically you get one run over the weekend to go as fast as you possibly can. And that's, that's your, your race. So you practice for a day or two, you do one qualifying run and then one race run. So it's quite a kind of stress, 
cutthroat, you know, go as fast as you possibly can um, sport, but super exciting. And you definitely push the limits of bike technology, you know, your ability um, mm. gets pushed. And that was for me was something that I, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed for the first 10 plus years of my career. And what and what then, sort of sports, um, sorry, what sort of speeds are you hitting going down that? Purely dependent. I mean, you can get up to kind of 50, 60 miles an hour, um, you know, on a wide open piste for sure, easily, you know. Um, but a lot of it can be, these days, it's, it's a mixture. It can be slow technical stuff, lots of jumps, yeah. lots of rock gardens, lots of routes. It's a big mix. But yeah, it can be super fast if you are wide open on a piste. Um, I, I presume that at that point, a, a lot of it is much more just instinctual and reactionary than, than any kind of conscious thought process as you're going down there yeah and also don't forget you've practiced that one course you know so a race okay. a race track will probably last between three to maybe five six minutes would be quite a long track so it's not a huge length you know it's still long but it's not you know out there for 20 minutes so it's you do over the course of a practice session you may do 10 12 practice runs of that course you also walk it multiple times so you will know every kind of root rock you know you know every turn so it does become almost like a little bit secondary nature. You are just going on autopilot in some ways because you can mentally rehearse it. You can practice, visualize the lines. There's so much mental, um, I guess, strength that you need for that kind of sport because it does become something that you've rehearsed and rehearsed and you've got to deliver that perfection on on that time when the clock ticks. Um, and that's one of the hardest things about it because there's so much pressure. You know, there's And it can just be one concentration slips and you get slightly offline or one of the biggest things that affects our sport is the weather. You know, it's outside. If yeah, it suddenly cool. pours with rain, it, it's a big, big difference riding down an alpine mountain that's covered in mud and mud and or you know, mud on the roots versus a lovely bone dry mountainside. So, weather conditions play a huge, huge part in in mountain biking, whether it's downhill or uphill. To be fair, um, so yeah, that's a big, a big factor for us. Um, so then, and enduro. Then, yeah, so enduro really is. A much newer discipline, I would say. Um, certainly, on the world level, the Enduro World Series began in 2013, so it's only been going for you know seven, eight years now. Um, it had it had kind of been going in France and some of the other European countries for years before that, but not in the same kind of format that we now see as a, a World Series. And what Enduro is, it is almost like multiple downhill runs within a within a race. And those downhill sections are linked together with pedaling liaisons, or you potentially could take a lift depending on the location of where you are. So I always kind of say to people, it's almost like a, a car, like a, a rally. So, you know, a um, WRC motor car rally where they have special stages and then they drive between them and then they do a, a time special stage in a forest and they'll drive to the next location. So it's, it's more of, um, you still need an amazing skill set because you are racing again, those stages are downhill but there there will there can be a lot more pedaling involved doesn't have to be as steep the bikes are quite different um so you are expected to pedal a bit more in those time sections but then you could have a 50 60 kilometer loop that links those five sections where you're going to be pedaling to the top of each of those so you could do up to as much as 2,000 meters of of vertical climbing within that 50 kilometers as well so there's a bigger element of endurance and aerobic fitness as well as the skills so, so would it's you kind say of, it's a more it requires more athleticism than the downhill well i think it's just different i think they're both you know the the downhill is very much power speed skill you know there's so much there's athleticism in that for sure the guys mm. racing down and out are really true athletes you know they train specifically for it so it's very different the enduro you just need to be able to ride for four or five hours you know back-to-back -back days with practice and then racing um 
And I think for me, at the point in my career, I guess my age as well, I was starting to want to spend more time on my bike at race weekends. So that downhill racing is awesome because it is like Formula One of, of mountain biking for me. Mm. But I was going to these places all over the world and only getting chance to ride that one three minute track down the mountain. And I could see all these other amazing trails. And I was like, I want to ride my bike more than just for three minutes today. Um, <laughs> and that repetition kind of got boring of going to the same locations, racing, racing the same track. So um, when I finally won the world championships in downhill in 2010, it was kind of like mission completed in terms of my goals for downhill. And I wanted to ride my bike more, I wanted to explore. And at that point, in 2011, 2012, Enduro wasn't really a, it was kind of a thing, but it was more mass start downhills that were, that were an hour long. Um, so the actual Enduro World Series format that I've just spoke about only really came, well, it came to start in 2013. And I happened to be just finishing my downhill career and was like, I want to give this a go. So I ended up basically launching straight into a, a new World Series for Enduro um, with a bunch of people that didn't really quite know what to expect. So you had cross country athletes coming in, you had downhill athletes, you had some French European guys that had been racing enduro for a few years. So it was a big mixture of like di- athletes from other disciplines that came to kind of start this new discipline of mountain biking. And the first ever race that, w- that was held in 2013 was quite a cool one because no one really knew who was going to win. You know, there was no kind of, you know, there's no history of this person wins on this kind of terrain or, you know, they won the world championships last year. No one Just knew. complete mystery. So it was like, are the cross-country guys going to win because they're fitter or are the downhill guys going to win because they're more technically wow, skilled? interesting. So it was a really cool start. And that year for me, looking back now, was probably my most fun and exciting year because it was so new. Um, and also just, it was James, my husband and I just in our camper van, basically traveling Europe for the summer racing with no support other than bikes and equipment, everything from Trek, but there was no mechanics or like no pressure from anyone. It was just us on like a big road trip. and. Um, it was super awesome. And for me to have won that first ever race and then to go on to win that first ever kind of year of world championship enduro was again, just really special because it was the kind of the year of the unknown. And let's see what happens to this new discipline that had just evolved. So yeah, it was cool. And then to go on to do two more years back to back of that, I really felt that I guess the enduro discipline suited me. I really enjoyed that challenge. And I think not having the same pressure with just one run. You had a whole four or five hours to race and you could afford to make the odd mistake and still, you know, still bring it back if you had another great run on another stage. Whereas down it was so precise and that pressure, I think, after so many years started to eat away at me a little bit and I found it hard to always deliver my best performance when I needed to. Um, so it felt quite refreshing to have enduro and just it, it definitely was maybe a discipline that suited me just a bit more, hence why I managed to actually win three world titles in three years when it took me 13 years to win one in downhill so it's kind of bizarre (laughs) (laughs) yeah bizarre it's been cool how does the the technology come into it because obviously the the bikes are so they're they're just they're such high-tech pieces of equipment at this stage how much are they affecting your chance to win your your choice of bike your choice of you know because you can you can customize to the nth degree can't you for sure. I mean, and for me, the evolution of the mountain bike from from the early 90s to what I'm racing now is incredible. You know, how the, the suspension is, has evolved over that time, how tires, how disc brakes, hydraulic dropper, seat posts that will drop at the touch of a button. There's so much amazing stuff that's that's been going on. Also, frames being made from alloy, now carbon, the weights of everything. There's so much technology that's gone on from all the manufacturers, all the components. Um but I have to say, I think 
if at the level of racing at a world level, most people are on, on a fairly level playing field in terms of all the bike manufacturers that are out there sponsoring athletes all make a good bike these days. You know, the tyre companies all make a good tyre. So I don't feel like there's any one brand that's way better. And it's not like Formula One where suddenly, you know, someone's paid extra and done some dodgy bit to the engine that's just got under the rules and they're allowed to run it until someone finds out that it wasn't you know, it wasn't fair or whatever there's none of that really it is, it is still down to the athlete and it is still you on the you know the human on the bike that's got to make it go well um and i do feel like there's quite a level playing field in terms of the best bikes out there and the equipment but what is happening is just that evolution year on year on year stuff's getting better working better lighter we're able to kind of you know switch off the suspension with a flick of a button on a climb so it takes away that sag and the bounce so you're being more efficient putting all the power to the pedals and then switch a button um and now a lot of it's wireless there's not even cables or or anything connecting it it's just a bluetooth between the shifter and the seat post and it suddenly will drop once the press of a lever wow. so it's pretty awesome you know the the evolution of the electric bike you know now we've got mountain bikes with batteries that give you 250 watts of power uh, the entire you know when you're pedaling so it's enabling more people to get out going places they probably wouldn't have done and also the racing that's now actually in 2020 is going to be the first ever year of e-bike racing at the enduro world series later this year so that's going to be a again the where the where that takes you the the steepness and the terrain you can climb with a bit of extra power is you know is incredible and that distance you can cover as well so it's it's cool because it's constantly evolving i don't know where it's going to go in another 10 Mm. 15 years time it'll be crazy i was going to ask about that just about how the sport has evolved because it I suppose pushed by the tech, um, you know, and the, the styles of riding, the the trails themselves presumably have changed quite a lot. Yeah, I think even in my years of the enduro, particularly, it started off those first few years. It was a lot more kind of of a journey in terms of location you went to. There's quite a lot more pedaling in this in the time stages and also in the liaison. Um, whereas now it's kind of developed a little bit more. Like you often go to a resort where you might take a chairlift. It's almost like the downhills have become more the focus, so it's become more gravity-based. So again, people are riding bikes that are more capable on those downhills and not necessarily mm. pedaling as well as you probably would have done seven years ago when it first started. So it is constantly evolving, and downhill racing is, as well has gone from kind of longer courses where you'd be in the trees a lot more to now shorter courses that can be televised. So they're trying to make tracks that look fast, look exciting, so they can get camera angles and they can basically cover an entire World Cup downhill course now. And you guys can watch it on, on Red Bull TV so you can see it, whereas that wouldn't have happened you know, a few years ago. So I think courses are being evolved also to suit that and to suit the audience as such and to how we're trying to promote the sport. Obviously, it is a sport with a certain amount of risk built in, especially when you're going at speeds of 50, 60 miles per hour. Um, I've, I suppose, first of all, have you had any severe or serious crashes at all yeah i mean i think there for sure there's risk there's risk in everything we do in life um and yes i have crashed my bike a lot um (laughs) but i've been fortunate that i've you know i've had a few concussions but none that have been really really bad you know i think there's we're now so much more aware of concussion these days in sport and 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 the impacts that it can have on life and i think looking back yes i definitely did have a few concussions but nothing to the point where it's it really affected me for long periods of time um, I dislocated my shoulder. I've broken my wrist a couple of times. I've had a couple of hip arthroscopies. So lots of little, like, I would say more ligamenty stuff than lots of really nasty breakages. Um, um, but thankfully, still just over 40 and still able to ride my bike and everything still works. So, so I'm doing all right so far. Um, but I, I do think as well, there's, 
it is risky for sure, but I do think it's not like you're not like we just jump on a bike and go for it. There's years and years of building up that skill level, that practice, the rehearsal. And I, you know, one of my biggest mottos I ever say, even when coaching now, is always look before you leap. And you don't just ride off something not knowing what's behind, you know, blindly. Hmm. So, you know, working out where that risk is and are you prepared to take it is a big part of keeping yourself safe and not getting hurt. So riding within your limits, you know, really building up to the progression to the jumps and the gaps and that kind of stuff definitely is going to help, you know, but obviously, yeah, things go wrong and mistakes happen and there's always that element, but that's, that's also what makes it fun. And if there wasn't that element of risk, there wouldn't be that same adrenaline, that that kind of fear that gives you the fun in the same way that would uh, attract us all to sports like this. I think that's exactly it, isn't it? I, I had a good chat with Victoria Pendleton a few episodes back and uh, and we were talking about exactly that, that the thing that makes these sports so valuable is the risk. It is the fact that there's a certain danger to them and that there's something to overcome. Yeah, for sure. We're all crazy. I want wanting to put ourselves through that, but that's what gives you that <laughs> feeling and you, you want more from it, don't you? It's, it's a bizarre human trait. <laughs> it is funny actually how, um, I mean, I suppose maybe I, I probably see it a lot more than you do because just because of where we train, right? So I train parkour, so I'm in the street, I'm in people's general space. Yeah. So they see me doing what I'm doing and they yell at me to stop doing what I'm doing because I'm going to hurt myself. And you think, well, like put yourself in my shoes. As you said, there's years of training behind this. Yeah. If you were going to yeah. do it, yeah, I agree, you would hurt yourself, but you wouldn't because you haven't done any of that training. Yeah. Um, I suppose you probably don't get that because you're, you're, you know, you're on trails, you're in... You're in the forest. Yeah. Presumably you don't have people sort of telling you that it's a bad idea. Not, not so much. It's more in general, peop- general public if you say, what do you do? Or, you know, what if you, it's a job. Mm. You do what? People actually don't really <laughs> even realise that mountain biking exists, I don't think, to a point in terms of com- competition. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think we are lucky that we do have lots of designated places. We can ride our bikes, the bike parks and bike trails where you can ride your bikes. You can ride them fast and, in theory, you shouldn't meet anyone. But saying that, I do think, you know, we all do also have to exist in a, a harmonious manner. And when you're out riding, you know, public rights of way, bridleways or trails and, that are out there accessible for all, I think people do have to also, I, I'm really conscious often that mountain bikers get a bad rap for not, not potentially being that courteous and trying to go too fast mm-hmm. everywhere. And I think it's really important that as mountain bikers, we are, we need to be kind of conscious of how we are. And I've been fortunate. I've been had that chance to race, I guess. And, unleash all that kind of wanting to go fast in a safe environment but I think there's plenty of places we can do that now and I think it's important that everyone respects that and and is you know I enjoy going for a walk and having a little one now as well it opens your eyes to suddenly being on the hills and there's bikes around you're like wow you can you can see how it's kind of scary when a bike goes past you fast so and if Mm. you don't equally if you don't ride you also don't think the half time people think you're not in control like they kind of panic when they see you because you skid or you make a noise like you're about to run over them it's like well actually no I'm perfectly in control but like you said unless unless you've you've been in that control yourself you don't appreciate that someone could ride a bike that fast and actually be perfectly safe Hmm. so it's a little bit of an understanding I suppose you you have to just anticipate their misunderstanding don't you you need to know that they're probably going to freak out when you yeah, hit your brake. And try not to do a massive skid so you scare them and, and to show you are actually in control. It's always a good start. <laughs> um, let's go to the complete other end of the spectrum. You mentioned traveling earlier. I believe you've done some pretty big sort of exped trips. Uh, can you tell us about tell us about that? Um, in terms of racing as well then? Some travel uh, do, racing ones? Well, not, not necessarily in terms of racing. I didn't realise there were some, but um, more. But, um, I, I think you did a trip with Dan Milner, if I'm not wrong. 
uh, to, to India. India, yes. Yeah. So yeah, I've done a, I guess a few. So a few kind of photo shoot trips. That was actually kind of a holiday slash photo shoot. We went to the um, the Himalayas and did a really cool trip with some friends. Um, and did a kind of trek up to the Pindari Glacier. Well, trek, I should say. We kind of pushed our bikes, I guess, just because it was getting to 4,000 metres-ish, I think, just less than maybe. And uh, you could definitely feel the thin air. So that was a pretty awesome trip where um, just a different culture, the whole thing of, you know, landing into Delhi and being surrounded by so many people, so much kind of so much going on, and then catching a train for many, many hours up north to start our trip. So I think one of the most amazing things the bike's done, not alone not as I mentioned earlier about meeting people it's that where it's taken you to as well and the places it can take you and it is incredible when I look back and think oh my word I've ridden my bike here and here and here um and one of the the other cool aspects of so in enduro the kind of racing side I spoke about that was like the world series format but there's also and this probably existed in those kind of interim years before the world enduro started when enduro was still growing in popularity there was like multi-day races so I've done a couple of them one in Chile, the Andes Pacifico, which is a five-day race where you start in the Andes and finish the Pacific. And it's, so again, the same format, you know, time stages throughout the day, but more of a journey. And you kind of get to a base camp, everyone stays in tents, next day you transfer and you do a next stage of it. And you kind of do a do a journey as a race as well. And that's was awesome. So that was one of them. There's a really and famous that sounds, one that's... Sounds pretty torturous, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. No, it was so good. And then the Trans-Provence, which is through the Provence region in France. Um, and that one's been it's just finished now I had its 10th year um, last year I actually did it um, for the last time and that again is a we started off as a week but it got down to six days where you start up near Gap kind of work your way through the the Alps down finished right next to Monaco and Menton on Nice so down to the Mediterranean and again those events for me have been probably the ones that I will cherish the most because not only is it you get to travel and do that with a a small group of people like often there's only about 50 people taking part or 100 max at one of those events so you do get to kind of meet those people from all over the world all sharing that passion for racing your bike but you're also in an amazing scenery you know that kind of journey aspect is what i really love about multi-day races um and there's also less i would say there's less pressure there's less it's less about the race results it's more about being part of it um and what you get to see and what you do and it's all blind racing so that's complete opposite spectrum to downhill so these events you know you you can't go and practice it you're on a journey for six days so you literally you're following arrows that someone's laid out for you you get to a little timing beacon and you have a chip that's normally around your neck or on your um, wrist it's like a little dibber and you basically beep you chip yourself in at the start of it you start racing following arrows blindly thinking you've got a kind of a, again, a bit like rally, like a course notes to know that it's, you know, this could be a five kilometer trail with a thousand meter descent and look out for these bits of you know, boulders or whatever, there's certain hazards maybe on it. So you've got a little bit of briefing, but often the person that writes it, you would interpret it completely different. And you think, where's that thing that they told me about? You <laughs> haven't seen. So sometimes I don't even read them and just go with what I see. And then you get to the bottom and then you chip yourself out. So it's kind of like all the someone at the bottom often taking a, like dipping you out so they're quite kind of unique races in that respect that yeah everyone's racing and someone wants to win but it's still it's about that journey and about where you are and the experience that you have with other like-minded people um and those adventures that i've done those multi-day kind of races have probably been some of my most yeah favored kind of memories i guess of, of racing my bike and so if those are six days long how how long are you riding per day I would say you're often out for 
nine to five is like a nine to five day pretty much um you will stop and have a lunch break those races there's no time like with the world enduros there's the actual start times you have to be at each stage at a certain time so there's an element okay. of pressure to get there on time whereas with these multi-day races often there's no kind of time limit They'll, you've got all day to kind of do it um and there'll be a lunch stop partway through and there'll be a few places people sometimes stop the cafe open and you know have a it's a bit more of a social kind of <laughs> day out um but you'll be in the saddle for a good five to eight hours every day for for six days so it's pretty sure. brutal then by the sounds of it good good brutal <laughs> in a good yeah. way yeah exactly yeah it is it kind of seems like quite a pure form of adventure to me to just like hop on your bike and be like right let's you know whatever it is get over that mountain or get through this valley or do this six-day race um yeah do you think there's something about the bike that is particularly unique in terms of adventure uh, i think that you don't get i think so i mean i guess the one thing i guess with those races that the one thing you're not doing is carrying your tent and having to cook so in some ways you're kind of cheating you're doing the best bits of the day without having to lug all <laughs> all that weight and then have to set up camp at the other side so that's why probably why they're even more special because you, you don't have to do that bit but but i was going to say the bike does allow you to do that bit as well so you could be completely kind of self-sufficient in many ways you know and take everything with you and go on an incredible journey and it, it can take you everywhere you know it is like a it's a bit of a workhorse in terms of you can load it up and pack it up like a mule and push it over a mountain descend down and you, you can do all sorts with it um but that's why i think it's quite special and i also feel it's like that self-propelled i'll look at like you look back over you know the trail that you've come from like say 10k down the valley and you're like oh my word i was down there not that long ago and i'm now you know up and over this pass and it's like i've done that all with my legs like that's pretty cool and i think that's something that's always think special i'm always amazed that where the bike can take you with a bit of a bit of um leg power and and willpower i guess mm. have you got any plans to do more trips uh, like the one you did with dan at all um, I'm actually doing a, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, later on in July, when we're allowed into Scotland, mm-hmm. um, going to be doing a trip for one of my sponsors, Shimano. They're, we're going to be in the Highlands with another former downhill world champion, uh, Manon Carpet, and we're doing a bit of a documentary kind of kind of road trip post, post-COVID. Um, so that's going to be awesome, I think, just to be torrid and sky in the west highlands an area that i've visited a few times but very little really i feel like i've done more time in certain parts of the alps than i have in in parts of scotland so Mm. really looking forward to that um and then hopefully all being well some racing back out in the alps um in august in september and and october so yeah hopefully still got some fun trips ahead if all being fingers crossed we can start to move around a bit more more freely so you are still racing then yeah, sadly, I think <laughs> it's really quite hard to ever hang up your whatever your shoes or your bike. I guess um, I had heard rumours that you had, and I th- I wasn't sure I believed them because I had heard both ways. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm, my main I'm, I'm I'm actually employed now by Trek, uh, who's been my bike sponsor for the last kind of ten years, but more to work as one of the managers for the their three kind of Trek factory racing teams for downhill, enduro, and cross country. So I work alongside the athletes and you know work in that capacity as my my day job, I guess. But kind of an, an additional side and an added bit was that the this e-bike Enduro World Series is starting this year. Um, they wanted someone to, to do it, and it was more it felt feasible that it was three rounds. They're all in Europe, traveling with 
a young family is that's probably about as much as I'm going to get away with being allowed to do um and it gave me it gave me what I guess I've always had in my life is a goal and a, a bit of a a bit of a something to kind of train for or to to challenge myself with which I haven't had for a few years since having Toby so I thought it would be a great chance to get me get myself kind of back into a little bit of shape but I'm gonna have an e-bike so it won't be quite as hard hopefully but I'm sure it probably will knowing knowing the guys and also be involved I kind of enjoyed that experience of that first ever world enduro in 2013 and I feel like this kind of pilot year of a new discipline again I kind of felt like I'd love to be involved in that and to see where it goes because I'm sure it'll be epic because they'll probably want to make it as hard as possible and realize they've made it too hard and we're all going to suffer <laughs> but i'm kind of waiting for that to happen so so yeah there's three races one in august september october this year in the alps that i'm hoping to compete in um and yeah be be part of history i guess as the first ever kind of electric mountain bike enduro series takes takes place so it should be cool oh, good. throughout your career you've you've dominated to the point where you've, you've really set the standard um for what can be achieved especially for women on a bike. Um, do you ever feel that you have a responsibility to the next generation? I know you've done quite a lot of coaching over the years. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I, I don't feel pressured to do it or feel like I, I have to. I think it's just, it's something that has happened naturally and I've wanted to. Um, <laughs> and I think it stemmed from when I first started racing. I was lent a bike when I was, I must have been 15, 16. And at the time, Helen Mortimer, who was one of our best um downhill mountain bikers in the uk she was sponsored by a professional team and she actually lent me a bike for one of the races when i first started so i think i was kind of a recipient of that kind of help and nurturing of the next generation in a way um so it felt right that when i was in a position where i had you know professional teams and bikes that i could pass down i wanted to do the same thing so that's kind of how my little timo racing kind of development team started is like i wanted to be able to help local kids that i could see talent in here um and just be able to give them a little bit of mentorship and advice and help and get them started because I've had just, you know, the most incredible, enjoyable career within this sport and I met some amazing people. And I felt like I'd love for others to be able to do that too, because for me, it's, it's been a dream really has. So that's been more of my motivation to to want to see other people enjoy, get the pleasure out of mountain biking and and cycling that I have um, and help them on the way. So that's how I've kind of found myself ending up wanting to help anyone and everyone as much as I could um, and I certainly when I see I see young kids particularly I've helped a few that have kind of been in the cross-country pathway and again that Olympic pathway and that dream quite hasn't happened and it's almost like they're about to give up the sport but I've been able to say Do you know what you're actually a really talented athlete like there is other there is other stuff out there not just cross-country and a few of them have now gone on to do enduro and do super super well at enduro wow, racing so brilliant. I've been kind of like feel like I'm a rescue a rescue society for like <laughs> athletes that Lost are going to get shed from, <laughs> yeah, shed from the world of the political pathway of, uh, of cycling to actually realize there's other stuff that they could do with their skills. And I think it's, it's so sad when you see kids you know, that have been pushed to the point where they just don't enjoy it anymore, but actually they've mm. got an amazing talent. They just haven't quite found the right way to, or, you know, to, to show it or to, or it to be seen. So, um, I've really enjoyed stuff like that where I've been able to kind of just help and have those contacts and have those, people to point them in the right direction and just often it's not loads it's just the odd word here and there and they're putting in touch with the right person and the way they've gone and they found sponsorship and it's yeah it's it's really really enjoyable and i love seeing you know seeing the pleasure that people get from and the simplicity that is is just riding your bike have you uh have you got toby on wheels yet at all 
I know he he's is, only small. yeah. <laughs> of course. He's um he's been on his little balance bike for quite a while and uh, he's on a, a bike, a little macro that goes in front of in front of me in the, between my arms and he holds the handlebars and sits on a saddle in the front. Nice. So he loves that. <laughs> and we have just got his um first set of pedal uh, first set of pedal bikes, but he's not quite big enough to reach the um saddle on the floor just yet so another few months i think but i'm kind of not to i'm desperate for, for him to ride and to go pedaling but i'm also like he's getting on really well on his little balance bikes and he let him have a bit longer on that but um yeah i just you know i really don't care if he races his bike or not i just hope he enjoys riding it that's more than to me that's more important than racing it's just mm-hmm. enjoying riding a bike and using it for going to work going to school whatever just having fun um, so that's what I hope. I hope I'll not be that that pushy parent that I, I've been speaking about hating at the start of this podcast. So. <laughs> we'll see. What's your advice for those that are looking to get into it and, and just don't really know where to start? I think the, the biggest thing is finding other people to ride with. I think that's the one of the biggest things is that social side, that group side. It needs to be fun, you know, and also mm. then the knowledge of where to ride. So whether it's a local club that's, you know, an official kind of British cycling affiliated or whether it's just a bunch of mates that meet locally, just try and seek out who it is in those groups that are out there riding. And that's the the best way in. Um, Or sometimes if that's not the case, just getting to races. And obviously this last few months has not been many to go to or any, in fact, but that's often the place where a lot of people start. They go to a few races, just turn up and, and compete. And then you find that, you know, you ride around people and you meet them and, oh, they live close to you. And there you go. You've got a riding buddy. So it really is just getting that first step of getting out there and meeting people that are doing the same thing, that have the same, the same passion. Um, even try the local bike shop could be the good connection to find out about local clubs or groups that meet. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's the way in because I would say that there's very few people out there that are riding mountain bikes that aren't good people that you'll, you know, you'll have a good time with and, and uh, yeah, get hooked on the sport. So yeah, just get out of there, give it a go. And I suppose one of the things that perhaps might put people off is the fact that bikes can be very expensive. Um, do, do you need all that gear, really? You definitely don't. I mean, you can spend ridiculous amounts on bikes these days with all the fancy stuff. Mm. Um, you can still get a decent mountain bike for between 500 and a thousand pounds that will, the one thing you want is something that's, light so it's not going to be a you know you can get them for a lot cheaper than that let's be honest from from many places but they'll be super heavy the components probably won't last very long you'll end up taking them off road and something will break or snap so you have got to be prepared to invest a little bit i think if you get anything less than 500 pounds then you're probably going to one be at a disadvantage with the weight of it and also it's not going to be it's not going to last you long so mm. if you can you know afford to invest between five and five hundred thousand pounds you could get something decent that will certainly get you started um but the, the reality is also there is their technology out there does cost, but it is also enables you to go a bit faster, to have a bit more fun. So as you get into it, for sure, the more you can spend, but there's a limit to you don't need to spending 10 grand. You could spend two or three grand and get a perfectly adequate bike to you know, even be racing on. Let's be honest, you don't have wow. to get all the bells and whistles. Um, but yeah, they're definitely not cheap, sadly. But it is one of those things that often you can go and ride. It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't cost you to go and ride your local trails, your local park. Obviously, yeah. you want to go do uplifts, it will be. you're up and running. There's lots of places you can ride that you don't have to pay to ride your bike. Um, so I think that's always the advantage. You don't have to pay subscriptions to go to the local swimming club or, you know what I mean? So it's, it seems like a expensive outset, you know, to start out, but then in theory it's a, it's free once you've got going. 
Nice. Um, let's wrap up with your lockdown recommends, which probably by the time this goes out, we'll be either out or back in, we'll see, <laughs> of lockdown. Um, um, but we're looking for one film or TV recommend, one song recommend. Well, this, this is a hard one for me because one I fill my entire time and barely ever watch TV, um, especially with a two-year-old and working and trying to train. I was thinking, what, what's the last film I watched? I was racking my brains earlier. Um, and I think sadly as well, I guess my life's always been a little bit kind of evolved around sport but I do remember watching a really cool um it was actually like a documentary I guess that's again something I quite enjoy watching is kind of real real stories and mm. things about other people in sport and there was a really cool one that um Patagonia put up I think this was the start of lockdown they're putting up a few videos on their their website or Facebook mm. and it was about um Verbier in the Swiss Alps that's been one of my kind of favorite go-to places ever since I've been been racing um and it was documenting people that lived in the the valets region and it was just just showcased the different sports you know and that appreciation for it was the mountain bikers but the the um base jumpers the the guys that that did some amazing climbing and it just made me appreciate just you know the places i go to yeah i go because i love riding my bike there and it's incredible but actually out there are all these other people doing equally amazing stuff that's their mm. passion you know you spoke about the parkour thing there's just there's so much stuff that people are into and whatever your passion is it's just i loved watching that because it was like watching someone else fulfilling their passion taking some crazy risks there was a slack line that went across this massive valley wow. and there was these guys that like they met up there was a french and i think in a spanish two different groups of people that had got together and one was they kind of both put up the the, the anchors and stuff on both sides and then joined it all up eventually it was like this little team thing and then they all reunited in the middle and it was just doing crazy stuff like that that I think is mad but then they'll think that what I do is crazy so it's just that I love just kind of seeing what other people do so that was yeah that was a good watch it was only a short one because that's about all I get to before I fall asleep in the evening <laughs> these days I, um, do you know what I'm actually just going to add one to that because this morning I watched um just on the note of you know seeing seeing other people uh choosing their adventure if you will I yeah. watched one this morning that starred you, uh, which was called, I think it was called just Mountain Biking, The Untold British Story. Oh, it yeah. Was, it's, yeah. It's on YouTube. It's like an hour long or so. Yeah. And it was really, really interesting and, and yeah. learned about the background of the sport in Britain. The history of the, yeah, really exactly. really interesting, like quirky yeah. characters in there. It was yeah, really, yeah. really good. I really enjoyed it. It was cool. That was, when that first came out, actually, it was really interesting because even I didn't know some of those ins and outs and like, those beginnings of quite how the sport started and, and awesome. the people that were involved. So, yeah, that is definitely a good a good watch. Um, yeah, it was the un- untold story, wasn't it? British mountain biking, I think. So, yeah, it's a good one. Um, what else do you ask for? Yes, for song. Music is next, And yeah. again, I think life does revolve around Toby, my little two-year-old, quite a lot. And he is so into Bob Marley, you would not believe. It's really? quite bizarre. Wicked. So he always asks for Bob Marley to go on. And... He loves the Gruffalo, so he nice. thinks the Buffalo Soldier song is. He calls it the Gruffalo Soldier. Gruffalo Soldier. Soldier. <laughs> so Gruffalo, <laughs> Gruffalo Soldier is on a lot in our house at the moment. Amazing. Um, but that's not a bad one. And then you said about a book again. Again, it doesn't, books. The, well, been, this one's only another, so it doesn't have to be a book. It could, it could literally well, I, I be anything. Of, I thought of what I have been reading, and it's this might make some listeners laugh. It was um, basically how to potty train your uh, child. So oh, I've done a nice. little bit of, bit of research because Toby decided about three weeks ago that he didn't want his nappy any longer when we were out in the woods and he just took his nappy off and went for a wee in the woods so <laughs> I, I quickly was like wow what do we do now so i had to had to get a book quick and learn about potty training so um <laughs> that was my uh, latest activities in lockdown i, so I think been, that's um, a surefire sign that he's going to be an adventurer one day <laughs> yeah first first woodland wee 
And that brings us to the end of another episode. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Osprey Europe to keep up to date with all our competitions and events that you might want to get involved in. Thanks to Tracy for coming on. Thanks to you for listening. I've been your host, Marcus Brown, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Osprey Podcast. Thank you.